many of my classmates were the children of like all the greatest stars and legends and producers of that era. So my classmates were Carol Burnett's daughters and wow, uh, uh, Don Rickles' kids and Bob Newhart's kids. Oh my God. Melissa Rosenberg before she became Melissa Rivers. Like, wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. So, it, he, and, and I was, you know, I think I came by it naturally. I mean, the thing is that, you know, growing up Jewish and sort of second generation American, it, it was like, it was very much uh, like the language of, of comedy felt like it was like our native tongue. This is Topia Tonight. Tonight. Hey. Hey, guys. What's hey, going on? How man? are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm just sitting here in my rocking chair. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for chair with, a, with a bottle of booze and uh, a gun, and uh, I'm whittling some wood. That's the character we're looking for, Dan. If you could provide that, that'd be great. Grizzled comedy prospector Dan Pasternak. <laughs> I'm going to put that on my letterhead. You're just surrounded by old comedy books like it's gold. <laughs> I sort of am. I mean, you know, in as much as my wife and daughter allow me to surround myself with that stuff. Is that, would you, would you say that's your nerd kink? Like, is that your, because everybody oh, yeah. like has something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 No, it has been for, you know, uh, how, how old are you guys? I'm 37. And I'm 43. Yeah. So, like, yeah, since before either of you were born. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. See, I, I the thing I know about comedy historians are people that are around, like, who know that kind of shit. They seem to have this ageless fucking wisdom, right? Where, like, I don't know how old you are, but you shouldn't know certain things that you know, and it makes it feel like you've been around forever. And it's You know weird. that Milton Berle used to refer to me as the world's youngest old Jew. Oh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Did you see his dick? <laughs> twice twice wow wow twice yeah it was so big you actually had to see it in installments <laughs> yeah. tom did, did i tell you the story the last time we spoke you know what this is one of my favorite stories so please do it. it again because john's never heard it and the oh, audience yeah. on this side i hate totally to repeat different. myself but uh oh, do it god you know it's uh, i'm not used to opening with the seeing burl's dick story that's <laughs> yeah that's we get usually, right into it that's usually a closer uh <laughs> You're trying to make it stronger. You got to come up with something else now. <laughs> wow, I know. I know. I'm going to really have to stretch. Yeah, so, we like to really fuck our guests here. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm hoping you mean that figuratively. <laughs> and yeah, well, you know, that's why they don't let us do it in person. But I, you did, know. I, I did hear the uh, the nudity on your big MS benefit <laughs> story before we started. So he was warming you up. Yeah, no kidding. Um, oh man, that's gonna be great. All right, yes, yeah, so I'm gonna do the Burl's story, the Burl's dick story, and then, uh, uh, yeah, and then uh, I think uh, one of you guys has to bust out your taint. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, can't, I can't. I can't think of where else we go. Okay. So here, here's the story. Um, you know, I was really good friends with Milton. I met him when I had started as a young comic. He was a judge for a competition I was in. Uh, there was a club in the San Fernando Valley uh, in Encino. There was a club called the LA Cabaret in the 80s. And I was uh, in the finals of that competition. It was called the Funniest Person in the Valley Contest. Uh, spoiler alert, I wasn't the funniest person in the valley. Um, I think out of a field of eight, I came in 12th. I mean, like, didn't do well. But, but do you remember no, who won? Um, that year, no. I remember, in the, I think in the year prior to that, uh, Tommy Davidson won. Oh, all right. Oh. Nice. So, I mean, some like legit people used to perform there. So, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, but Milton was very, very nice to me. And he said, uh, you know, kids, you're funny, but you got a lot to learn. Call me at the Friars Club. I'll buy you lunch. I called him the next day. Wow. I called over to the Friars Club the next day. He was there. He said, come on over. I put on, you know, my little nerdy bar mitzvah sport jacket and tie. And I went over and I sat at the Friars Club and I just like listened to stories like this, you know, it was just yeah. like, you know, I think it was uh, Milton and one of his writers, a guy named, oh God, um, oh God, Buddy, oh, I'm so sad, I can't remember Buddy's last name for the moment, um, but Henny Youngman was there, I mean, oh, wow. it was like, it was that scene, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I would smoke cigars and every time I would try and like pipe up and say something funny, Milton would like shoot me a look, you know, like he would say every once in a while, he'd go, I work alone, you know, uh, <laughs> you know shit like that. But he yeah. was hilarious and really, really nice to me. Mm. So eventually we wound up like doing some like business stuff together. And at one point, briefly, I worked at an agency and Milton didn't have an agent. He said, you should be my agent. So I was like Milton oh, Berle's wow. agent for a while. Wow. Um, I just uh, had a million jobs. I, you know, the, the narrative will be, this guy can't hold a fucking job. Um, <laughs> so we'll so, title but, the episode. Yes. So at one point, I booked Milton to do a guest voice on, remember the animated show, The Critic? Oh my God, yes, I fucking love that show. So Milton was going to play himself on an episode of The Critic, and one of the guys, one of the showrunners, I forget if it was Mike Reese or Al Jean, one of the two of them mm -hmm. came over to Milton's apartment. He had a, like a condo in the Wilshire Corridor to record him. So Milton said um, he wanted to punch it up. So would I come over early before the recording session and we'd add some, some jokes? So, okay, mm -hmm. sure. Now, Milton, being a comic, not a morning person. Yeah. Uh, I get there. His butler, he had a butler. Hans was his name. Wow. Him, I remember. Buddy, I still can't remember, buddy. Oh, God. <laughs> um, it's going to kill me. Uh, I hate that. But anyway, so Hans opens the door, and Milton is standing, uh, is sitting there, rather, uh, in a bathrobe, mm -hmm. no underwear, knees apart. <laughs> like knees like in separate time zones apart you know what i mean and just there it was jesus christ it yeah. now yeah. for your viewers or listeners um you know this was a legend milton's yeah uh endowment was you know 
uh, it's something that it was lore that was passed down through the ages, right? Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've heard all the stories. I'm sure you know the story about he and Forrest Tucker, right? Yes. So that, I, that story I love too, because I don't know if all of our fans have heard it. So yeah, they may ahead. not have heard it. But yeah, yeah, that'd be a good name. Remind me, I'll circle back to that. I will. Sweet. So I walk in. We're just going to do an hour on Milton Berle's cock. Why not? <laughs> um, so I walk in and I just pin it, and I am. It's I'm like transfixed. Now I will say, look, I, I've never been particularly fascinated by another man's manhood but it's a legend and there it yeah. is and it lived up to the legend wow which legends like that don't often you know um uh you know uh, i mean there's just so much uh you know exaggeration that you say it, it can't be true i'm telling you I, I swooned. I actually audibly swooned. I was conscious of, like, I saw what Milton, I. Oh! <laughs> and Hans comes over and adjusts the bathrobe. And, you know, that's sort of it. Yeah. Wow. Fast forward to about, it's a few months later, maybe not even three, three, four months later. I'm at the Friars Club again with Milton and I'm in the bathroom and I'm standing at the urinal and Milton comes in and stands next to me. And at this point I'm going like, you know, was that like a, like a optical illusion? Well, he like, like, you know how uh, under hypnosis you can sort of suggest sure. something yep. and, right. and like, maybe you didn't see what you thought you saw, but it's just, again, there's so much, you know, uh, you know, so much build up to that thing that, you know, maybe I just invented in my head that it was as impressive as, as anyway, mm -hmm. I just, I'm at the urinal, Milton's next to me and I just start to, <laughs> you know, do that. Right. Yeah. And he catches me looking and he goes, is this what you wanted to see? And just wheels <laughs> on me. And he's just got his, hog in his hand and i just kind of do one of those cartoon <laughs> all on the floor oh and wow. you know it's the friars club men's room and you know it's, it's yeah. i'm basically laying in a suit in a puddle of old jew piss yeah you know <laughs> which is but the funny part is that milton doesn't put it away reaches his other hand out to help me up and i'm like i got it i got oh. it just put the monster away that's sheath, hilarious sheath your sword excalibur be gone <laughs> I just, it, yeah. it might have like, only been better if he uh let it down to you like a rope to help you up Rapunzel, Rapunzel. <laughs> yeah uh yeah let me ask you this at what point did his dick ask you to be its agent uh, actually, uh, it had better representation. Did it? All right. Yeah. It, 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 yeah, it, uh... it, the you build it up so well, though. Better than anything. Better than anything I've read. So I'm like, oh, that's nice. That's but nice the great younger. story um, was. Uh, so he was at. I don't think this was the Friars. I think he was like at Hillcrest Country Club, as I remember. This is remember. Mm -hmm. This is one of these kind of stories that has been passed around and is kind of urban legend. But I did hear this from Milton. So I think he was at Hillcrest Country Club 
and he was in the steam room with Forrest Tucker. And apparently Forrest Tucker was also uh, the subject of similar um, sort of legend, okay? Mm -hmm. And they're just sitting there in the steam room and suddenly they become aware that all these guys are coming in and they see money exchanging hands, like a lot of money. And they're like, what's going on? And they're like, well, look, we know about you, we know about you. So we got a lot riding on who's bigger, will you, you know? Will you help us out here? Forrest Tucker doesn't even hesitate. Stands up. Sure, why not? Stands up and with a flourish, whips off his towel. As Milton described it, there is a stunned silence, which could only be described as awe. And in that silence, one of Milton's other writers, a guy named Jay Burton, Mm -hmm. was the man who uttered this line. He said, all right, Milton, just take out enough to win and let's get out of here. <laughs> oh, that's great. It's one of the great stories of all time. Yeah, that, that is. is fucking hilarious. And you tell it perfectly. Perfectly. Yeah. Right? Yeah, first well, time I, I've heard I, it, man. I, I heard it from the master. So there you go. Oh, very nice. I've tried to find that guy's name, the the writer's name. I was trying to Google Buddy and then I, uh, Milton, I can't find it online. Maybe it's got to be, it's going to drive me crazy now, too. Hang on. Oh, <laughs> you know, talk amongst yourselves. Yeah, Buddy Arnold. There we go. Nice. Buddy Arnold. Okay, great. <laughs> All right, that's it, everybody. <laughs> oh, I feel so much better. Right the now. end of the show. Um, no, it's crazy, man. See, that's hey. the kind of stuff that, like, There's I Polly would Chaser not. Chaser from the oh. Netherlands just checked in, too. How are you, sir? See? Very nice. That's fun. Yeah. Well, we're drawing an international crowd. To hear yeah. Stories of Milton Burl's penis. Oh, man, uh, I hope Polly heard that. If not, rewind it, Polly, because you will enjoy that story, I promise you. <laughs> it is, it is, that's the kind of shit that I would not assume that you would have worked with Milton Berle, you know what I mean? You don't look like, you don't necessarily look like you'd be doing that kind of, like, you're that old. You know what I mean? You're not old, but you know what I mean? Like, like Well, the interesting thing is that also led me into something that became um, kind of a a side gig for me. Not even really a gig, just something I did... Uh, for the pure love of it. So I helped to start this project for the Television Academy 26 years ago, I think, which was at the time called the Archive of American Television. It's now just called The Interviews, uh, the most generically yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, named uh, you know, uh, uh, oral history project ever. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it is the Television Academy's compendium of long-form interviews with seminal figures through the history of the medium. And the first person I interviewed for the interviews was Milton. Interestingly, my final question to him after about a four and a half hour interview, and you can see it, you can go online um, and you'll see it starts with me and Milton lighting a couple of cigars. And uh, I say, okay, Milton, just for the record, is it true? And he gives me one of these looks like, is what true and i believe i said it (laughs) (laughs) and his response was after some sort of hemming and hawing he goes look i think at the time he was maybe oh god if we did it in 96 he was born in 1908 he would have been like 88 years old at the time uh he said at my age when i get an erection i black out (laughs) <laughs> that's a great joke 
<laughs> How do you go from, I mean, you know, so you're doing stand up, you started out doing stand up or whatever, but like somebody like Milton Burrell asked you to be their agent. Like we know how hard it is to get an agent at this point in the game and like what they have to do and the kind of network behind them and everything. You had no experience being an agent. How the hell did you even go about? You just make phone calls and you go, I'm Milton Burrell's agent. Does the name get you through as an agent? And then you just kind of organize and book the gigs or what, it what was that a very, like? It was a very specialized kind of representation because Milton at that point had not had an agent. You know, he'd been with the William Morris office for, I don't know, right. 50, 60 years, you know, until yeah. all of his agents died, you know, or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and I, I think guys like that do get to a point as I've observed with a lot of, you know, older writers and performers at some point, you know, their representatives retire or die. And mm -hmm. then, you know, the younger people are looking for, well, who's the next thing? They're not really interested in the Milton right. Burles of the world. And I just happened to get this job at this agency and, you know, started to put together, uh, you know, a kind of a roster that was some young writers, some up and coming performers, some producers. And then uh, I think the way, I, you know, I, I got to work with Milton is he had a, an idea for a TV show and he wanted to go out and pitch it. Wow. And so I sort of figured, and it turned out to be true, who's not going to take a pitch from Milton Berle? Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. we didn't sell it. Ultimately, I was able to book Milton on some really good gigs. Mm -hmm. uh, and my strategy in working with him turned out to be a pretty sound one, which was like, look, Milton, um, like doing another, whatever it was, you know, Bob Hope special or anything, it's not going to get you anything. Like that audience is there until you die or they die, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, but what turned out to be kind of a winning strategy was introducing him to people who were excited to meet him and trying to find new ways to use him. So mm. like he got an Emmy nomination. I had booked him on an episode of Beverly Hills 90210 right. to play, you know, an old vaudevillian with Alzheimer's. Mm. And he was, Milton was a really good actor. You know, yeah. he, he had been Emmy nominated before for, um, I forget if it was like Playhouse 90 or one of those kind of early TV shows for um, a, a one-off called Doyle Against the House, where he played um, like a, a blackjack dealer. Oh. And, and he was terrific. I mean, he really was a good actor. Right. So um, yeah, we found lots of ways to um, sort of recontextualize Milton. And I made a deal at one point for his... Um, memoir as a like a made-for-TV movie. I, it never got made, but it was in development for for quite a while, and I think he was very excited to, you know, just be engaged in that process. Yeah, he. Was, I remember when I was a kid, he was on Fresh Prince of Bel Air, and he was great on it. I mean, like really emotional stuff. Yeah, that may have been his final one. Hmm, no, Fresh Prince of Bel Air. I'm trying to think. That may have been. Shortly after I left the agency, because uh, that was sort of that was sort of what we were getting him into was like getting him on Howard Stern and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. So I, I think he really, you know, once he got introduced to a younger audience and, um, you know, and, and different 
producers and executives than he'd known. I, I think that really gave him kind of like a like a real shot in the arm. Was he kind of aware of his? I mean, like, because you know, some of these guys, as they kind of get older, they fight tooth and nail for relevancy, as opposed to like dipping into their, you know, backlog of what they know. You know what I mean? Like old old comedy stuff, kind of, you know, um, leaning on what what they can excel at at this point in their career. Was he like that? Was he like, okay, look, I'm. This he was age. incredibly driven. There are nice. there are some guys that I think uh, stay in their comfort zone. Milton was never afraid to leave his comfort zone. Nice. Um, and so that's why that was fun. Like I, I had a brief period where I worked with Sid Caesar as well. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's uh, another legend. But yeah. but really just to sell Sid's uh, memoir as a movie because I had done it for Milton and then Milton had mentioned it to Sid. And anyway, next thing you know, I'm, I'm in business with Sid, who was another fascinating brilliant man and mm -hmm. sweet 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 man it, that memoir was amazing I, i'm one of those guys uh probably like you were when you were younger when i when i was in high school i had all the comedy stuff all the man every book mm -hmm. every i've got jonathan winter's book i've got all the dvds and stuff i was wondering the memoir because you did anything ever come of that with the film because laughter on the 23rd floor i thought you know was supposed to be kind of like a sid caesar-esque you know. Right. And, you know, there have been a number of those films that were based on the writer's room mm. from your show of show in Caesar's Hour. And right. Laughter on the 23rd Floor was Neil Simon's memoir of that experience. Right. From his experience. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, My Favorite Year was another movie that was kind of based on that show. Out of the two, which would you say was the closest representation? Um, God, they're both great. I haven't seen Laughter on the 23rd Floor for a while. Mm. I just recently rewatched My Favorite Year. By the way, really holds up. I oh, mean, yeah. Just so great, every performance. Mm. Um, but, you know, Sid's story was a fascinating one because, mm. um, and I wound up doing one of those TV Academy interviews with Sid, yeah. um, which afterwards uh, his uh his wife florence said uh told me that sid said that's the interview he said if i never do another interview he goes that one that's the interview beautiful wow. which i you know obviously was deeply flattered by mm -hmm. um because sid was not somebody who um was as outgoing as milton milton was incredibly outgoing a real extrovert sid was the opposite mm -hmm. um one of the things sid said in the interview was that the most uncomfortable he was during any of those TV shows was when he had to come out as himself and say, you know, good evening, welcome to your show of shows, I'm Sid Caesar. He said, in a character, I'm fine. He mm -hmm. said, as myself, unbelievably uncomfortable. Wow. Do you think that that's the difference between the stand-up and the sketch comic? Because Milton was more on stage, you know, doing jokes. Not that they're, they're necessarily personal ones, they were as himself, but... Sid never did anything. I don't know as a rule. No, I, I think it, it it's different from performer to for, performer. I know plenty of really introverted um, stand-ups, too. Yeah. I mean, we, we just lost one and, uh, yeah. in Gilbert, in Gilbert Godfrey. Gilbert, yeah. And, you know, I mean, yes, Gilbert did a lot of characters and impressions and voices. But, mm -hmm. I mean, I think people would be surprised, you know, to learn you know, how shy Gilbert was. Yeah. 
but you know, again, Sid, Sid was as well. And uh, when he revealed that that little bit in the interview, I, I thought, wow, he's he's really giving us a key to something about him. Yeah. And and so anyway, his memoir was also about, you know, the toll that doing that TV show took on him. See, the thing is about laughter on the twenty third floor and my favorite years. It's really from the writer's perspective. Mm -hmm. And those were legendary writers' rooms. You know, Mel Brooks, Neil Simon, Larry Gelbart, all, all of you know, Carl Reiner. Yeah. Amazing, amazing writers' rooms. But I think Sid really felt like the weight of that show was on his shoulders. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I, I read speaking of those writers' rooms. I read something recently. There was like a debate about when Woody Allen was there and if he was even if he was even uh, writing on that. No, no. At the very, very end, I actually don't think he was even on Caesar's Hour. I believe he wound up writing on like a couple of specials after Caesar's Hour was already over. Wow. As I recall, you have to look that up. But I believe he wasn't really in the writer's room. Yeah, he was there. To, somebody had said something about being there towards the end. If that, I think somebody had said. Yeah, I think it. Well, I think it wasn't when the series. So there were two distinct series. There was mm -hmm. a show of shows, which was with, with Imogene Coca. And then there was Caesar's Hour, um, which was with Nanette Fabre. Mm -hmm. um, but some of the really great sketches really were actually from Caesar's Hour. It was a much more actually sophisticated show. Not that your show of shows wasn't sophisticated. Right. Um, but some of the really most brilliant writing was on that show. And I think that after Caesar's Hour ended, Sid did some specials. And I think what he wrote on those. Okay. Yeah, that... It was one of those weird things, man. I was reading like a, uh, like kind of like some people's recollection of what was going on during that year, and they said that it was like almost like a Mandela effect, where people just automatically lump Woody Allen in with that group, and they have no idea why. And they were like, could have been because he was friends with all those guys, but they were. Oh, because was like, I think Sid always cited him as sort of being a graduate of you know that great academy of writers that right that you know that worked under him. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah, because there was a what was that special that they did where they were all on stage together? It was, I think it was called Caesar's Writers. And somebody, this is what brought up the conversation. And somebody was like, well, "How come Woody Allen sent on that stage?" And then there was this whole giant debate. Wasn't he? Were, no. Oh, you know what? No. In my mind, actually, Woody was on that stage. But. I think that's what Mandela effect. It is. I was right. going to say. I think that's what people were like. No, he was totally there. No, it was only yeah. It wasn't Woody wasn't there. But still, an unbelievable lineup of writers i mean really it's like the 27 yankees of, of absolutely staffs. Yeah. yeah the best of the best um what got you into this whole thing what got you into entertainment show business stand-up were you is it something you liked when you were a kid or did you kind oh, of fall yeah. into it this is all i've ever been interested all i've ever been interested in i mean nice. look, part of it was i grew up in la so mm -hmm. i had like geography on my side and i was surrounded yeah. by it i was surrounded by it uh in that like the park where I played uh, Little League Baseball was across the street from 20th Century Fox Studio. You could literally see wow. the studio from the park. Mm -hmm. So it all seemed available and normal. And it was exciting. And also, many of my classmates were the children of like all the greatest stars and legends and producers of that era. So my classmates were... Carol Burnett's daughters and wow, uh, wow. Uh, Don Rickles' kids and Bob Newhart's kids. Oh my God! Melissa Rosenberg before she became Melissa Rivers. Like, wow. Uh, wow. Uh, yeah. So, 
and and I was, you know, I think I came by it naturally. I mean, the thing is that, you know, growing up Jewish and sort of second generation American, it, it was like, it was very much uh, like the language of, of comedy felt like it was like our native tongue. Do you know okay. what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Certainly at that time. Um, I can't stop picturing you 10 years old going over to, you know, uh, Melissa Rivers' house and like interviewing her mom as a kid, like while she's <laughs> cooking you guys dinner. <laughs> like, you know what? Not far from it. I mean, <laughs> I have tapes of interviews that I did with, oh my God. Um, well, I just digitized one that I uh, one that I did when I was fourteen with Mel Blanc. Oh no way, dude! That is yeah. that's fucking awesome. That is yeah. so cool. Who who got to be a really good friend of mine? Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, dude, that blows yeah. me away. Yeah, we just had Billy West on. We were talking about Mel Blanc, and I've got like just books and stuff. I I was when I was a kid, and I found out that one dude did all those voices. It fucking blew me away. I didn't understand it. Now imagine being friends with that guy. Right? When yeah. When you're 13 or 14 years old. Oh wow. My God. Was he generous with the voices? Did he kind of do them for you? Absolutely. Oh, that's awesome. He was he was a guy who was really generous, not just with the voices, but with his time, especially where kids were concerned. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I think he really understood like how magical that was for kids. And again, I'm I'm in LA, he's right there. And I had all these tapes of all these old radio shows. So I collected tapes of like old time radio shows, Jack Benny, Burns and mm -hmm. Allen, Deborah McGee and Molly. Um, oh. So I had all this stuff and Mel didn't have any of it. This is, you know, there's no internet, so there's no place for him to get it. So you had sure. to co collect like by trading with other people who were like old radio fans. Mm -hmm. And so when I met him, I said, oh, I have all these cassette tapes of all these old radio shows that you were on. And uh, he said, oh, can I get copies of those? I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> so I started making tapes. And I would ride my bike to his office and I'd bring him, you know, a half a dozen, a dozen cassette tapes. And he's like, wow, can I pay you for these? I'm like, no. He goes, well, let me buy you lunch. And he would take me out to lunch. Wow. Wow. And then he would like talk to me and he'd teach me about doing voices and he even got me a gig on a cartoon with him. I even did wow. um, a Heathcliff cartoon with no Mel. No fucking way, dude. I was just thinking about Heathcliff the other day because they're going to reboot it. Oh, really? Yeah, that's what I had heard. They're going to reboot the show. And I used to watch that on Saturday mornings when I'd come home from like, school and shit. Or not uh, well, school, but like wherever I was going. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, where was I? I, I literally now have to think in my head. I was like, did I watch it on weekdays? Because I definitely came home from somewhere. And my parents weren't divorced yet. So I don't know where I was. Where was I as a kid? What was I fucking selling shit on a corner when I came home from <laughs> from the jewelry. night shift at the diner? Yeah, on Forty Sixth Street, I was uh, coming home to Heathcliff in the game. It was really coming was home late. from a knife fight. You know, whatever. Covered in blood. Oh God, yeah, I don't know where I was, but yeah, that was a great show. Yeah, and it was you know an incredible experience. Cause did you see what, what what personality would you say most embodied the characters that he did that represented him? Oh, I mean, Mel was a chameleon, and you could see him physically change when he was doing the voices. Huh. Um, he was almost it was weird. He was almost a little bit method about the voices. Like he really wow. thought about like, I mean, in the interview he talks all about this about. Uh, 
thinking about like the geography of like where the character comes from and you know is it a big animal what is is that voice reflective of in terms of its personality um yeah. hmm. it was sort of incredible and he started really his way into voices was always a dialect so he really talked about you know trying to like capture a dialect first and then sort of almost have that be like the core of the voice and then like mold the voice around the dialect. Wow. Whenever I found out who the voice was to a character, sometimes I could see immediately like, oh, that guy is this one. But like Fred, Al you know, Alan Reed, I mean, was Fred Flintstone. Right. Like there was no, like he was even in an episode of the Dick Van Dyke show. And I was just like, oh, that's just Fred Flintstone auctioning off shit to, <laughs> to Dick and the gang. Like that's all that was. Uh, it's weird. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, Mel really got started in radio, mm -hmm. um, kind of, well, concurrent with getting into the cartoons. But like when Jack Benny got into television, he took Mel with him into television. And Mel was terrific on camera. Um, Those clips I've seen, they're on YouTube. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They're awesome. Um, I mean, one of the ones that gets passed around, you know, once a year you know, almost like a tradition is Jack Benny's Christmas show where Mel plays the the clerk, the beleaguered clerk, where Jack uh, is buying and returning a wallet over and over as a Christmas gift. Yeah. And Mel has to like return it, unwrap it, you know, buy, you know, get the different wallet, then rewrap it. And then he goes, you know, slowly insane. Right. <laughs> yeah. But you can see that Mel really could fully commit with you know, with body and soul, as well as a voice mm -hmm. to that kind of uh, mania that he brought to those characters uh, as a voice artist. Right. Yeah. Did you did you feel like uh, what, what? How old was he when you guys were friends at that point in his career? He was like in his 70s. In his 70s. Did he still have the same like would you say he had the same drive Milton did at that point too? kept working, keep going? It was a little different. So, you know, Mel had a near uh, fatal car accident. Mm -hmm. uh, in the 60s. Right. And it was 1961. And he was in a coma for 21 days and in a full body cast for the better part of a year. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think when he came out the other side of that, it wasn't so much drive as it was kind of, I think, gratitude. Like, I think he, he lived his life very joyfully and i think he loved his work and he continued to do his work because he loved it um but it wasn't the same kind of um need that he had to feed that i think milton had wow i think milton really had a need that had to be filled right you know what i mean and i gotta ask because i didn't what was the heathcliff character you did that he did or that i know you did oh um it was like a a kid in the neighborhood that uh kind of uh tortured Heathcliff and that he Heathcliff hated so it was kind of like a one episode nemesis character I gotta, I gotta find this episode no. and all I it. remember was I think it was one of those great kind of cartoon voice actresses who was supposed to do it and then at the last minute couldn't and then Mel suggested me so it was wow. someone like I don't want to say it was like June Foray or B. Benaderet or one of those you know great right. cartoon voice actresses who was doing this little kid and Mel said, I know a real kid who could do this voice. <laughs> <laughs> like, That's great. Wow. Yeah. But it's the only time I ever did that. 
did these guys, did these guys, I mean, when you were coming friends with all these people and kind of mingling and going around, did they ask about each other? Did they ask you, like, did they see your resume and go, holy shit, you know, you were hanging out with Milton Burl or Jonathan Winters or Mel Blank. Like, did, did they have any curiosity about each other? I mean, they all, I mean, these guys knew each other. So like, for example, the way I got into business with Sid was through Milton. Okay. Um, and, you know, by and large, a lot of these guys, you know, had, you know, long, deep relationships. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I became friends with Jonathan Winters, I think the first thing that kind of um, was a point of entry was that we were talking about Milton and he brought up Doyle Against the House, that first Emmy nominated yeah. performance that Milton had done in like the 60s. And I right. said, oh, I've got a, I've got that on VHS. And Jonathan was like, oh, can I get a copy of that from you? And so it was almost like the Mel Blanc thing. It's like, yeah, yeah, sure. And then, wow. you know, a few years later, I wind up interviewing him for the TV Academy. And anyway, one thing leads to another. And then, you know, we forged our friendship from there. Wow. Did, I, I wanted to ask, did your, did your parents have any foray into the entertainment industry or were they totally no. outside of it? And how my, did they feel about you getting into it? My dad was a CPA. And my mom worked in the fashion industry. She had been a buyer for the May company, and then she was in manufacturing for a while. And then unfortunately, uh, that, that business went under and my family went through some really bad financial times. And then my mom worked for about 20 years after that as a store manager at the Beverly Center for first Bullocks and then Macy's. But no, no, no connection to the business at all. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly a lot of interest in it. Um, my dad was a great fan of great writing, um, and, uh, you know, they were real connoisseurs of it. And I think that certainly helped to fuel my interest was like, you know, my first comedy albums were the albums I stole from them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you remember Absolutely. them, which ones they were? Oh, sure. Sure. Well, the first one, interestingly enough, and this is so prophetic in so many ways was an album it's the most generic comedy album you could ever find. You could probably go online and find it. It was called The Comedians. And it was literally a white album with like blue um, typeface on the front. And it was like a sampler platter from a bunch of different comedy albums. Hmm. I don't know what, who produced it or what it was produced for. I really should research it. Mm. Um, but it had Jonathan Winters. Uh, wow. Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner doing a 2,000-year-old man. Nice. Uh, Joan Rivers, Buddy Hackett, um, Rodney Dangerfield, Red Fox, and Lenny Bruce. Wow. <laughs> and it's so interesting. Like, I think back about some of those bits on that album. Now, I was probably seven, seven or eight when I stole that album and immediately <laughs> became fascinated with all of these comedians and what they were doing and I would go to the record store with my allowance and I would look for albums, full albums by those comedians. So those were the ones I started with. Yeah. But I remember the Lenny bit was the father Flotsky's triumph bit. Do you know that routine? Yeah. And that's interesting. So it's the, it's a prison movie. If you mm -hmm. don't know it, Tom. Okay. Um, and it's, it's really funny, but there's some stuff in it where it's like, I remember at one point the, uh, Lenny does a bunch of different characters and he's like, all right, Dutch, we'll meet all of your demands except for the vibrators. <laughs> <laughs> I 
what must I have thought that <laughs> meant at seven or eight years old? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I remember. I, I just I, knew it was funny. I just knew it was funny. Yeah. That was something I downloaded when I was in high school off of like Napster because I used to just grab when Napster popped around, man. I mean, not only was I downloading just endless amounts of music and stuff, but once I figured out people were uploading old comedy albums and like audio clips from shit that I'd never heard of before, I was just grabbing that shit like crazy. And that was one of the ones that popped up. And I remember showing it. I remember me and my friends like just laughing hysterically at the vibrator thing because it was like that. And uh, all the dirty shit that Rob, like all the album stuff from Rob Williams from like 1976, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Reality well, with a Concept and all that other shit. 1980, Reality with a Concept 1980. Is 1980? What's 76? Nothing. So the album, wait, was the album in 1980? The album's 1980. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, that's crazy. Because I then one of his, was one of his specials in 76? No, no. Robin didn't break until 78. Mork and Mindy, 78. No one knew who Robin was before that. Okay. All right. That makes sense then. I yeah. thought there was something in 19... Maybe, I don't know what the hell he I was thought a, it was. I mean, he was certainly already performing in 76, but... Right. I, I, I thought it was... I don't even know if he'd come down from the Bay Area to LA at that point. Holy shit. Okay. I don't know what the fuck I got 76 from then. But yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, I thought that like that kind of shit I just downloaded all the time. And we were like dying laughing at it. And then, uh, God, what the fuck else was the? I was just going to ask you something about Jonathan Winters. Were you were you around when he actually wound up in like, you know, a mental hospital or no? Uh, I mean, that's a very complicated narrative, and I'll try and simplify it. Uh, you know, the fact is that a lot of the lore around Jonathan's mental health was so um, distorted. And really much to his great torment throughout his life. I mean, John was bipolar mm -hmm. and he had been hospitalized twice. Once after an incident in San Francisco in 1959 and then again in 60, uh, 61 um, mm -hmm. for like eight months. And that was really the last time he had to be hospitalized. Um, and look, he struggled with it his whole life. Uh, and you know, I mean, I saw him at various points, take himself off of his lithium cause he hated the way it make, made him feel mm. or after his wife died when they upped his lithium and then he wound up in the hospital with lithium toxicity, which was, oh, man. you know, but the truth was that he was you know, beyond that struggle of being bipolar, he was brilliant, incredibly sensitive, mm. you know, the most emotionally available person I, I've ever known. Um, and that's the thing is that I, I think that he suffered a lot because he was really the first public figure, the first celebrity who went public about struggles with mental health and lost, I think, a lot of work because, you know, behind his back, people are going, oh, I don't know about this Winters character. I mean, he's crazy. Right. Um, Did and, they even know what it was back then? What did they diagnose him with initially? Do you... Well, that was part of the, I think, the struggle for him is they wouldn't give him he said, I want a label. Give me a label. What is this? Right. And they were like, well, it would just upset you. Um, and you know, eventually Jesus. he was told it's manic depression, which later 
uh, I, I think, was renamed, uh, you know, bipolar. Right. Yeah. Um, but for a long time, he didn't know what it was. I mean, he knew that he was, you know, going through periods where he would have, you know, incredible energy and then terrible depression and even sometimes hallucinations if he stayed up for too long. Um, so it was something he really struggled with. And uh, but he did it in a way that was, I think, incredibly brave, he started to, um, you know, inject a lot of what he was experiencing and what people were saying into his work, um, which no one had ever done before. Right. And you guys stayed friends all throughout. You were like one of his close friends, right? Oh, yeah. For the last 10 years of his life, we were family. I yeah. mean, I I presided over his memorial service. The family right. actually asked me to, you know, produce and 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 MC his memorial service after he passed. Was it? I mean, it must have been hard, kind of watching him go through stuff. Because I had read something, and I have no idea if this is actually true, but that he'd actually questioned whether or not he was funny anymore at a certain point in his life. That's got to be the like somebody as hilarious as he is kind of doubting themselves like was it like i don't know is that true that he was kind of like not feeling him i don't i don't recall him ever asking whether he was funny or any anymore i do know that he was very frustrated that in his later years he felt like people either didn't know who he was or didn't know what to do with him wow um i mean probably the thing that bonded us forever as friends so i did this interview with him for the tv academy and one of the things I had asked him about during the course of the interview was he'd been on this show called uh, Davis Rules. He played uh, Bonnie Hunt's father on yeah. the show. And he and Bonnie always, like the two of them were like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Like just, <laughs> their improvisations together were just a thing of beauty to see. Right. And at that time, Bonnie had another half hour sitcom on ABC. So I, after the interview, I said, oh, have you talked to Bonnie? You know, she's got this new show. He goes, ah, oh, no, I haven't talked to her for, for a while. I haven't heard from her. But he had been talking about how he hadn't been working and that like no one thought of him. I'm way up here in Santa Barbara. No one thinks of me and no one knows what to do with me, blah, blah, blah. So I'm driving from Santa Barbara back down to LA where I was living at the time. And, uh, I called my friend Norma Vela. Norma had been the co-creator of Davis Rules and was also a, a producer on Bonnie's new show. And Norma's a really good friend of mine and also a huge Jonathan Winters fan. So I said, you know, I just got finished with this interview with John and we were talking about <laughs> Bonnie and I mentioned the show. And anyway, Norma said, can I call you back? Sure. So I'm driving, you know, down. I'm in, Ventura at that point, whatever. And she calls me back and she said, I just talked to Bonnie. Give me Jonathan's number. Bonnie wants to call him right now. Wow. So I called John just to make sure it was okay. And I said, Bonnie Hunt wants to call you right now. Can I give her your number? He was like, oh, sure. <laughs> Bonnie Hunt calls him. This was a Thursday or a Friday. The following week, he came on and did like a, just a 10 minute improvised spot on her show. They wow. just left a hole in the episode for Bonnie and John to do a bit where I, I believe within the context of the show, she was a TV personality and he came on yep. and did a bunch of different characters. And again, just totally improvised. 
it was great, and John got an Emmy nomination. Holy shit. John's wife, Eileen, who I adored, um, said to him, John, you need to give Dan Pasternak a commission for that. <laughs> At this point, I'm not an agent, okay? I just did this because I love Jonathan, and yeah. you know, it's a thing that yeah. you do. Like It gives you joy to do that, sure. right? Sure, absolutely. I said, I'm not going to take a commission. So uh, he instead said, I'll give you a gift. I'll give you one of my paintings. And that's it right there. Oh, my God. That wow, is amazing. that's amazing. That's, that's called, so great, man. The thoughts of a Hollywood actor drowning in his own pool. <laughs> oh, my God. That is so fucking cool, dude. Yeah, my, my whole, this whole room, all of the artwork you'll see in here, those are all by Jonathan Winters. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my that's God. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I'm. We were just we just had Paul Provenza on, and we were talking about the episode. Oh, well, you know I love Paul. Absolutely, yeah. And we were talking about the episode uh, that John was on with. Um, I Robert put that Fine. together. Yeah. You, I was gonna, I was gonna ask what you had because yeah, he mentioned so, your name. He said he, Dan Pasternak. Yeah. No, I introduced Paul to Jonathan, and they, of course, I, I mean, I that was the thing is I made a point of introducing Jonathan to everybody I loved in comedy because again. Well, first of all, John just loved to play. That was the mm -hmm. thing. He would always call me, you know, uh, he would just say, you, you got to come up here. You got to come up here. There's there's just no one to play with. So I would <laughs> go and I would go up to Santa Barbara and we would play. And so I introduced him to Provenza and I introduced him to Chelsea Peretti. They wound up doing a video when I was working at Super Deluxe. Nice. Um, I introduced him to Mark Marin, and he wound up going on Marin's podcast. That was a great um, one too. Uh, I, uh, oh my God. Oh, Kimmel is my favorite story. Um, so I'm having lunch with Jonathan. This is around 2004, maybe 2005. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I always ask John, I said, you know, who are you watching? Who do you see out there that you think is funny? And he goes, there's this new kid. If you've never watched his show, you got to watch him. His name is Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> well, Jimmy Kimmel is one of my four best friends on the planet. Wow. I truly, like, like I hired Jimmy for his first TV job when he was still Jimmy the sports guy on the K-Rock uh, Kevin and Bean morning show. Oh, my God. That's so cool. Wow. Yeah. So you know, at that point, I knew that Jimmy was on vacation. He was down, I think, in Mexico. But I thought... Oh, we we gotta leave uh we gotta leave Jimmy a, a voicemail. Because mm -hmm. this is crazy that he's like, you know, Jonathan Winters is like raving about how much he and Eileen love Jimmy Kimmel. So I I call him, figuring it's just gonna go to his voicemail, right? Because he's in Mexico. Right. He picks up the phone. I said, Kimmel, I thought you were in Mexico. He goes, I am. I was just playing Scrabble on my phone. I didn't even think it worked down here. <laughs> I said, Well, I've got someone who wants to talk to you. I throw the phone to Jonathan and Jonathan, his favorite thing in the world is pick up the phone. First of all, he starts, I think, doing an impression of Guillermo, you know, from Jimmy's show. So he's going, Jimmy, Jimmy. That's I'm sure great. like, what's going on here? Yeah. And then, uh, and then Jonathan says, hi, Jim. My name's Norman Feldman. Uh, I'm with Rainbow Pictures. I've got $3 million to make a movie, and I want to give you about 600000 to play a retarded kid. <laughs> Finally, after a bunch of different characters, he says, Jim, it's Jonathan Winters. I just want you to know 
you're the only funny person on television. Wow. My wife and I love you. And in fact, we're raising money right now to take Jay Leno to a real Italian neighborhood where, they'll, where they will beat the shit out of him. <laughs> oh, my God. And so anyway, John hands me back the phone. Kimmel at this point is so emotional. I can't even begin to tell you, but you have no idea why. Hmm. Now, by the way, this was on April 1st, which was a significant day for a number of different reasons. Mm -hmm. But Jimmy, of course, thinks this is an April Fool's prank. He goes, Pastor Nack, if this was an April Fool's prank, I'm never, ever going to stop getting you back. <laughs> no, 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 it's really Jonathan Winters. I'll take a picture and I'll send it to you. And he goes, do you know how much that man means to my family? Why? I'm like, what do you mean? He says, what's my younger brother's name? I said, Jonathan. He goes, he was named for Jonathan Winters. Oh, my God. Wow. His Jimmy's dad, Jim, was such a Jonathan Winters fan that Jim and Joan, when they had their third child, Jimmy's younger brother, mm. named him for Jonathan Winters. Wow. wow. I didn't know that when that I put so him on the cool. phone. Yeah. So John wound up going on Jimmy's show a couple of times, and I actually wound up taking Jimmy's dad up to Santa Barbara for a day with Jonathan, which of course was incredible. Jonathan yeah. opens the door dressed as a German U-boat commander, <laughs> pointing his cane at Jim, yelling Schweinhund at him. <laughs> Jim starts crying immediately. Oh saying, my God. You have no idea what you mean to me. Wow. And then they went in and started putting on different hats and we started taking pictures of them and all the different hats. And then we all went out to lunch and had just a beautiful, beautiful day together. But, oh my God. But that was the thing. So I always delighted in trying to put Jonathan together with all these different people. So I put him together with Provenza. And then when Provenza was doing the green room, mm -hmm. um, he said, do you think you can get Jonathan to do one? And I said, yeah, probably, but we need to think about like who else is on that panel because, you know, you really want to have people that Jonathan will want to play with, people that like right. to improvise and who like Jonathan. Yeah. And I knew that Robert Klein's two favorite comedians were Lenny Bruce and Jonathan Winters. Right. And they had never met, right? No. Amazing. No. Maybe they'd met once briefly, but they didn't really know each other. I introduced Jonathan to Robert, Wow. but, but they'd never worked together. So sure. I called Robert, who's also a good friend, mm -hmm. um, and I said, hey, I'm helping Provenza out. He's doing this show called The Green Room, and like it shoots out in L.A., and before I can even finish, Robert is like, ah, you know what? I hate going out to L.A. I just had some <laughs> dental work, and you know, he was like, so, like, you know, half the time I always feel like as brilliant as Robert is, he's like, ah, I can't be bothered. I don't want to do the whatever. <laughs> I, all I had to say is, well, it would be you with Jonathan. I, a when, like, you don't have to get the winters out. It's like, <laughs> when do I have to be there? You know, do I do I have to get on a train? Do I walk there? Like, yeah. As much as Jonathan loved like playing with all these people, you can't imagine the delight that they had in playing with him. Oh he yeah. He was such a genius. He was so much fun. And that I was actually already here in New York. And I was, I think at that time I was producing a show. It was like in the middle of production, but I just flew out for, I think less than 24 hours just to be there for that taping. Oh my God. Yeah. 
that would th- that was one of the best times I think I've ever seen him uh, on TV with a bunch of other people. He was so on and so fucking sharp, so funny. Like it was, it's one of those things that like I'm so glad it happened. Even before I knew like you and Provenza, like I was just like I'm very very happy this exists because I love these people mm-hmm. so much and I like having them it at their best. You know what I mean? Like just firing in all cylinders and super fucking funny. And that is that's one of my all time favorites of Jonathan. Uh, that makes me so happy to hear because honestly, you know, the great, the great gift for me is I feel like all of these people have given us so much. Mm-hmm. And in the last 10 years of John's life, thinking about just going through all these people I put him together with and he got to do Jimmy's show and he got to do Provenza's show and he got to do the thing with Chelsea and Marin's podcast. It's like, well, that was a way to give back to him. Right. Um, so I'm, I feel very fortunate that I got to do that for him, you know, yeah. beyond just having this, you know, really wonderful friendship with him, mm-hmm. um, was, you know, how often do you get to actually give something back to those people? Yeah, man. I know what you mean. And I while you're giving back to him, I feel like you were spreading his legacy and continuing it even further because now you're reaching all of their fan bases who might not have been as on top of what a legend he was until they got a glimpse of him and then went and tried to delve a little deeper. Which is Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, even Chelsea, who, you know, is a really smart, thoughtful, um, you know, learned comedy practitioner, I don't think she really understood what was so special about Jonathan until she was like, kind of going back and forth with him, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I think that I know that that meant a lot to her. And of course, I we had a lunch, Chelsea, John and I, and we put John on the phone with her dad, which she said, you know, uh, wound up just meaning the world to her in terms of her relationship with her dad. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, even on that show, uh, you could just tell everybody was kind of in awe of being around. Like when John Jonathan spoke, everybody was like leaning in, listening. You know what I mean? And then also, mm-hmm. what I love too is you can tell this when you're any any if you know other comedians, you can just tell when they were doing their thing and trying to make people laugh, they would look to see if he was laughing. Yes, which is well, the, the other person on that panel with us is Paul and my dear friend Rick Overton, right? Who I love Jonathan, Rick. Jonathan also loved Overton. Mm-hmm. And uh, at one point, I'm trying to remember what the joke was. Oh, God, forgive me. Because there's a there's a <laughs> moment where uh, Overton said something that just floored Jonathan. And Jonathan kind of lit up and his face got like, he was he had this quality that was like a little kid. And he pointed at Rick and Rick was like, I did good, right? I did good, I did good. <laughs> Uh, oh, it's so delightful to see. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I like it's. It's cool to just see the people that you admire admiring the other guy that came before them too. Like everybody, I like seeing everybody's got a hero. Everybody's got somebody that they. The reason why they got into the business, the reason why they do it, and it's just nice to see that other people react the same way you would. You're normal. Well, you know what? It's funny. So you talked about the the stuff I do for Sirius XM. Mm-hmm. One of the big miniseries that I haven't even completed yet. There's six and a half hours of it uh, available on demand uh, on, on the app from SiriusXM is um, my story of the comedy boom of the 1980s. 
Mm. And the first episode is called Even Your Heroes Have Heroes. And uh. so that whole first episode is just talking to all of the stars of the comedy boom about who inspired them. Lovely. Oh, awesome. that's awesome. I can't wait to listen to that. And there's great stories. And, you know, we've lost a few of those people that are on that special. So, like, one of my favorite stories is Bob Saget talking about going to the motion picture country home and spending a day with Larry Fine of the Three Stooges. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. That's it's, incredible. It's an unbelievable story. I won't even, I, I can't even do it justice. you got to listen to it. Yeah, I, I can't wait, man. That's going to be great. It is kind of fun. You know, like one of the reasons why I feel like I'm I'm also because I have something in my brain that's just literally burnt out, but like where I don't mind calling these people who I've admired for, like if somebody gets me somebody's phone number, like I've, I've never met Robert Klein, but oh, we got his number. We got him to come on the show. I just called him and spent like a half an hour with him on the phone. And like, sometimes I'll hang up after and I'm going, what the fuck is wrong with me? <laughs> like, because afterward I'm like, holy shit, I just got to talk to Robert Klein and it was awesome and he was fucking great and he's going to do this thing. But at the same time, I'm like, what would possess me to even fucking go? Yeah, yeah, let me give him a call real quick. You know, it's nuts. But I feel like that's what... But he's incredible, right? He's incredible. He's the fucking best. And he's so nice and super fucking funny. The same thing when we first got Ed Asner to come on the show. My manager got mm. his number and he was like, he wants you to call him because he wants to know about the show. And then... I didn't even, th I was like, yeah, I'll give him a call. And then it was afterward that I was like, are you fucking not like, what <laughs> you go? Yeah. Okay. But he was great. Super sharp, funny as hell. And I love it. I, I talked about five times on the phone and it was almost, I wish I had those on tape as opposed to the interview that mm. we have on tape. You know, it yeah. was, it was nice. But um, that's what yeah. I was going to say. History favors the bold. And I feel like that's something that you do. And Dan does like, you're willing to put it out there and be like, yeah. Hey, nice to meet you. I'm so, this, this is who I am. And, and I think they appreciate that bond. Yeah. yeah. Like what I was going to say was, is the, what I think inspired me too is I remember reading a story about Dick Van Dyke calling, um, um, oh my God, you know what I'm talking about? Give me a second. Laurel and Hardy, uh, Stan, uh, Laurel. Oh, Stan Laurel. Yes. Stan Laurel, oh, Stan Laurel was his idol. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, he, and, they, and they, they wound up having a relationship. They yes. did because he I looked him up in, him a, in the phone book. In the he phone book, the phone yeah. Book. He yeah. looked him up in a phone book and called him and said, uh, uh, this is Dick Van Dyke. I've been borrowing some of your, you know, of, of your stuff. And he goes, I've noticed. <laughs> and they did. They built up this relationship. By the way, another just profoundly wonderful human being, Dick, Dick Van, Van Dyke. Dyke. Yeah. I, can I tell you right now that I am like, I... I have tried. I'm try I've been trying so hard. I don't even care if he if he popped on for a second, and said hello, or wrote a whatever it is. I've been trying to get him to talk to him. I actually so my my PR person when I went out to uh, L.A. Um, somebody got me hooked up with like Lori Jonas, like PR. Mm -hmm. Do you know Lori Jonas? Okay, yeah. so Lori's great. She's super nice. She kind of took a liking to me, and then and then we were talking, and I said the same thing. I'm like, I love Dick Van Dyke, blah blah blah. And she was like, Oh, she's like, oh, I'll just tell you where he lives, and you know he's usually there. She's like, he's a sweetheart. Just drive by. And I literally thought she was fucking with me. And I was like, are you like serious? I can just go. Like, she's like, yeah, he might be there. You know, he shops at the, he's like everybody else. So she tells me where to go. I drove, I drove out to that area. I've obviously, it was funny when I drove out there. I mean, I didn't, I didn't see, you know, didn't see him, didn't get to meet him, obviously. But I found out later that he was in Disney doing like a thing for like the Mary Poppins. You know what I mean? Like he was doing like an appearance or whatever. But it was still one of those things where I was like, I'm nuts. I'm driving out to an area of California that I don't, I've never been to. I just moved there. 
And I was like, and I'd never been to you before. And I'm like, hoping, what am I do? Stand in the stream? Like, Dak. <laughs> like, I would have done it though. If well, I thought I would have gotten him out, I would have done it. To your point, there was a period for me, I want to say from about the mid to late 80s to maybe the late 90s, where, you know, I was starting to build a little bit of a career where I had, I, I, I felt compelled to try and be professional. And, you know, that whole thing of like, you don't ask for autographs, you don't take pictures, you don't do all of that stuff. And I'll tell you, there were so many missed opportunities during that time that thankfully, in a few cases, I got to make up for. So one of the first TV shows I worked on as an executive was I was working for a uh, um, a gentleman named Fred Silverman. Fred Silverman had been a legendary programmer in the 70s and then became a big producer in the 80s and 90s. And I was his vice president of whatever uh, at the Fred Silverman company. And the show we were producing at that time was called Diagnosis Murder Yeah. for CBS starring Dick Van Dyke. And every time I went to the set, it was like, oh, I should get a picture with Dick. I should get him to sign something. It was like, no, no, you're here in a official capacity, you're a professional, you know. <laughs> and then finally, I don't know, a couple of years later, maybe early 2000s, they did a Dick Van Dyke show reunion special. Yes. And it was shooting at CBS Radford, where I had an office at the time. I was working for, at that time, Carsey Werner. And so a friend of mine was working, actually my old college roommate, was working as Carl Reiner's assistant on wow. the special. So I went by and Dick was very, very sweet and remembered me. And I said, you know, I never got a picture of us together. And he's like, oh, well, let's let's remedy that right now. <laughs> and so I have a picture of me and Dick Van Dyke on the set of the Dick Van Dyke show. And I got him to sign that picture. Awesome. And I got everybody to sign a script. So I got Carl Reiner and Rosemarie and Mary Tyler oh. Moore all to sign the script along with Dick. And so I got to sort of, you know, make up for uh, at least a couple of the people that, uh, you know, that when I first met them, I thought, no, I, I can't do that. But I don't know. I, I sort of figured out at this point in my life, why am I pretending to be cool? Like, I'm yeah. not cool. Like, no one thinks I'm cool. And I'm depriving <laughs> myself of, like, this stuff that's, you know... It lives in my heart. And it feeds your soul. <laughs> yeah. And nine times out of ten, I think that they they do kind of, if you, you know, if you're not a maniac about it, people do kind of appreciate you. Like I, I was the same way you were. When I got into stand-up, there were other comedians who were like, you know, if I was in the clubs in New York and somebody like a like a Louis C.K. or a Todd Barry at the time or somebody walk in, they'd be like, Don't go up to them, don't ask them for a you know, a photo, don't talk to them. And I'd be like, Well, we're on the same show. Like in my head, I wouldn't understand it. Like it's not like I'm like, we're on the same show. Like we're, we're, you know, we're doing whatever, but I wouldn't do it. Never went up to them, never talked to them. And then after a while I was like, this is fucking stupid. And then mm -hmm. you realize that everybody it's posterity. Like some down the line, people do appreciate a photo of them or, or, you know, but here's the thing that I figured out. And this mm -hmm. is why the first episode I did of the eighties comedy boom was even your heroes have heroes. Mm -hmm. Probably the most exciting thing I got to do as a comic was I got to open for George Carlin for two shows. Oh, wow. Wow. And 
you know, it was kind of in that moment where you don't, I didn't bring a camera because it's like, oh, you know, you don't get a picture. Uh, and I was thinking of not asking for an autograph. So I didn't get an autograph that first time I met him. But we exchanged phone numbers and, you know, every once in a while he would call me and we got to be, I wouldn't say friends, but friendly, friendly mm -hmm. enough that he knew who I was, which was enough to, you know, blow my mind. Right. <clears throat> but we got talking and it turned out that he was telling me that because he grew up in New York, he would hang out outside the stage door of Broadway theaters and collected autographs. And I went... You collected autographs? <laughs> it was like, that's why it was important for me to do that episode to show that all of these people that mean so much to so many, mm -hmm. well, they came to it the same way. Yep. They came to it as yeah. fans. You know, I did, I just recorded a two hour conversation with John Cleese, mm. and he said that um, he understood the fandom of python fans because he was the same way about the goons peter sellers spike Milligan, right. harry seacomb he said i felt the same way about the goons that people felt about python he said so i actually understood those people yeah that's i mean yeah. i i i admire that so much man it's like you know just having the appreciation and still being still being as big as these people are, but still kind of appreciating like, oh, I remember me. I, that's me. This guy's me when I was that age. And, you know, and they're being kind about that kind of stuff. Because I've only I get, I can only say like maybe a couple few people here and there who were kind of like, not that great. You know what I mean? Like or maybe sure. they're just having a bad day sure. or whatever the deal is. But nine times out of 10, everybody's really cool and everybody's really sweet and they understand the role that they play mm -hmm. for, you know, especially if you're a performer for somebody else coming up right behind them. And it's nice. It's just, you know, it's nice to see. You know, we started with Milton Berle's cock and then it feels like we're wrapping out with something that's <laughs> much more anatomically a little higher up, you know, about two uh, feet up, you know, right uh, here. Yeah. I right see. You here. like what I... See, we ended strong, but in a completely different way. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't see where this was going, but now it all makes sense. Yeah. I like <laughs> to get the cock out of the way. That's going to be the title of this episode. Getting the cock out of the way with Dan Pasternak. <laughs> you know what? Do me a favor, considering the times we're living in. <laughs> don't have that be the title. Okay. I Which, really appreciate right. it. I I'll really do you that. that. John, I really appreciate it if that was not the title. <laughs> I'll do you that solid. I won't make that the title. We'll come up with something better. I appreciate it. Oh, Which is a hilarious. perfect segue into some of the questions that that have been yes. coming in. And oh. Polly Chaser had asked, let me put it up. What do you think is the biggest difference between between now and when you started in comedy? Um, well, there's so many differences. I mean, the thing is that it's first of all, it's an art form that is constantly evolving. So I mean, it's interesting that the guys that were the the young comics were sort of fighting against all those older comics who were like, you know, why do you have to do this? And why do you have to do that? And why do you have to work blue? And the young comics were just like, ah, these old guys, they just don't <laughs> get it. And now those young comics are the old yeah. guys are going, the young people, they just don't get it. You know, and it's yes. sort of like, but what I think is really interesting is that I think, look, I love 
all of this comedy that came before. And obviously I like to put context around it and curate it and preserve it. But I also love a lot of what is happening in comedy now. I think comedy has become very, um, it's become a richer, more um, complex kind of tapestry. <laughs> I think it's much more inclusive in terms of representation, mm. um, which I think has been great. I mean, I think comedy has always been a reflection of our culture and i think it's reflecting you know uh, a growth that i see look i teach to third year grad students at the at the tisch school of the arts at nyu so i see sort of that generation and then i have a 14 year old daughter and i see the young people as they're growing up i think that they're they're really nice people and I think that I'm seeing a lot of real emotional honesty in comedy. Like, I don't know if you've seen Gerard Carmichael's new special. Yeah. I think it's remarkable. I think it's fantastic. Um, He's always been really great and had like a depth to him right from the get-go that was there. And Taylor Tomlinson's new special. Oh, Taylor Tomlinson's fucking hilarious. She's great. And yeah. I just saw uh, my friend Hassan <laughs> Minhaj just did uh, five sold-out shows at uh, Radio City. Oh, Incredible. Nice. In three nights, five sold out shows. Wow. And I think he's bringing people to comedy that have never been comedy fans before. Sure. Um, so I think the difference is, look, I think the market is more fragmented than ever. And that's just because media is more fragmented. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of things I don't like in terms of um, how, how divided and how uh, addicted to outrage people have become. Yeah. Uh, and, and I would love to see a de-escalation of that. But I do think that generally I, I'm seeing some really beautiful work happening. So uh, I think the biggest changes have been in terms of both representation and also, um, you know, the actual uh, presentation of, of, of what comedy is and i'm not even just talking about stand-up you know i mean i see that in scripted narrative comedy as well um and there's also obviously there's just a proliferation of platforms mm -hmm. I, I mean i grew up there were three broadcast networks you know now you know I, my daughter probably couldn't tell you what the three broadcast networks are yeah yeah and the and the other thing is too is it's one of those things where like you know, with social media and everybody posting their comedy, like sometimes it's like you're inundated with comedy and comedy clips on social media to the point where like a lot of us sometimes talk about uh, is that going to wind up kind of drowning out the quote unquote, the boom that we're in right now. Right. Is there so much of that? where, like in the same respect where like where TV was coming out and comics were on TV constantly. You can't scroll through your Instagram without seeing 50 different comedy clips from like, you know, different comics, people posting it all the time. And, but the thing is, is like, I think they're just short bursts that they're everybody's just able to find their niche. You know what I mean? Everybody's able to find individual audiences. It's not a full clip. It's not an hour special. It's just, here's this little mini version of me. And I think it drags people out to see their favorite ones in the club. Like, Oh, I want to see a longer version of that. Right. But like I say, <clears throat> like, even as fragmented as the audience is. Yeah. Hassan Minhaj still sold out five shows. Yep. Over three nights at radio city. Right. So I That's think that, I mean, there were not this many stadium comics when we were growing up and, and everything right. was so consolidated. Now, you, I mean, Gabriel Iglesias selling out Dodger Stadium. 
Right. Yeah. You know, or Kevin Hart or Gaffigan or Mulaney. I mean, think yeah. about all the comics and the, the, the size of the stages that they're playing on. Right. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, and you were talking a little bit, you mean, we, we talked about it backstage a little bit before, but you were um, just kind of the, uh, the outrage culture a little bit and, and kind of how that's feeding into it. My, let me see, let me see if you think this is correct. This is my theory of it. I think comics were not prepared in the beginning to deal with how much media attention they were going to wind up getting. Cause I think we're getting more than we ever did before. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, social media has given everyone a bullhorn. Right. And, um, you know, in some ways the, the, uh, the democratization of, you know, uh, you know, everyone having a platform is a good thing. And in some ways it's, uh, it's cacophonous. You know what I mean? It's just like, sure. you're just, you just can't even think with the din around us all. Right. Um, but because everyone has a platform in order to get attention, you know, people have to sort of find a way to go, hey, everybody look over here. And unfortunately, the go to that most people use, and, and frankly, what's really disappointing is I, there are a lot of quote, unquote, legitimate um, journalists and um, uh, people who are reporting on culture who use outrage. Um, whether it's merited or not, they just know that, well, that's going to get clicks. It's, it's clickbait. Yeah. And so like the Hollywood uh, reporter article that we on, on Cleese when you guys were doing the thing in South by Southwest. Right. Right. Which was, I can just tell you from having been on that panel, wholly unwarranted, wholly right. unwarranted. I right. mean, basically what, so we had a panel, it was John and uh, Ricky Velez and Dulce Sloan and Jim Gaffigan. I mean, mm -hmm. really a panel that by design represented a, a real range of perspectives, of generations, of identity and geographic origin. And everybody from the minute they hit the, hit the stage, I had done a ton of prep for that panel. I was the moderator. Right. And you know, my job was to sort of guide them through a conversation about comedy. From the minute they hit the stage, I took my notes, I threw them on the floor, and I never looked at them again because they were just, everybody was just like firing on all cylinders. You have to remember, this was the first time that they were able to have the South by Southwest Festival in person since 2019. Yeah. So it's been, been three years. So everybody was thrilled to just be in a room together. Mm -hmm. And all of those performers were you know, uh, I think enthralled with getting laughs and bouncing off one another. And, you know, once we got about an hour into an hour and a half panel, you know, everybody was loose enough that people started saying stuff that was, you know, taking a little bit more of a chance and a little bit more of a chance. Mm -hmm. Not in any way other than just like, okay, like I'm comfortable with you, you're comfortable with me, we can do this joke. Yeah. Right? So uh, at one point I prompt Ricky for a joke. Uh, this is a joke from his act. And he said, I'm uh, half Irish and half Puerto Rican. I'm just glad I'm not gay because that would be way too many parades to have to go to. <laughs> <laughs> a great joke. Like a mm -hmm. joke, you know, it's just, it's just sort of perfect. And yeah. Cleese says, you never see an English parade. 
Dulce Sloan says it's called colonization. <laughs> and we're just off and running at this point. And um, I think at, uh, at that point, John said something about, you do realize that the English didn't invent colonization. Dulce said, yeah, but you all were so good at it. It's the reason <laughs> I'm here. I'm not even supposed to be here. And, right. then jo and John said, yes, but we did give you free passage. <laughs> <laughs> now, look, again, in the context of this evening, you understand, everybody in the room understands, these are jokes. Yeah. Everybody on stage is comfortable with, their with them being jokes. Mm -hmm. It may not each person saying something that someone else might not have said. There's a great moment where I turn to Jim Gaffigan and I go, Jim, and Dulce goes, you'll notice has said nothing. And Jim <laughs> said, yeah, that's because I'm the one who looks the most like a Nazi on this. <laughs> but go ahead, you know? So, I mean, we're, we're having this kind of exchange. It's fun. But totally fun. Everybody in the audience is laughing. And by the way, it was one of those shows where everybody had to put their phones in a little case, you know? Right, right. And so we kept pointing out, we kept saying, and this is why your phones are locked up. You know? <laughs> Just totally having fun with it. The next yeah. day, the Hollywood Reporter writes this piece about how John Cleese said these terrible, you know, things that turned, you know, a fun comedy panel into a, you know, a cringy whatever. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, not only misrepresented how all of these things were said, but also misrepresenting the way it was, uh, the reaction it got in the room. Sure. Nobody in that room, I'm telling you, nobody in that room took it as anything other than like, wow, this is like a big, like ja jam session. Yeah. Um, and so then what happens is because that piece is written to provoke outrage, it provoked outrage. It provoked mm -hmm. outrage on the left for uh, John Cleese saying, uh, you know, these terrible offensive things about slavery. And oh, there's a moment where I should share this with you guys. There's a moment where um, he's talking, John's talking about uh, how far back in history he had to go to say, well, you know, the English were uh, enslaved. He says, we were enslaved by the Romans from about the year zero AD, and Dulce and I are both going zero, <laughs> zero AD, really? And so he's going on, he goes, yeah, so we, we should get reparations from the Italians as a joke, right? right? And I said, wow, if you're gonna go that far back in history, <clears throat> you know, then I get to play the Jew card. Mm -hmm. And he and he says something like uh, he says, you know, I'm knee deep in Jews. I have two Jewish grandchildren. I said, you're <laughs> knee deep in Jews because we're traditionally not a tall people. <laughs> um, and something else, uh, I say something else about being Jewish. And uh, Ricky says, roast him. And I said, did you mean that literally? Uh, <laughs> so these are the jokes, right? These right. are the jokes. So finally, John goes, do you know why Jews have sloping foreheads? He's going to do some like old joke. Yeah, yeah. Like, and Dulce goes, oh no. And she runs over and she grabs John's mic away from him. Yes. Right? And then uh, Ricky takes his mic and hands it to John and she snatches that mic away. And then <laughs> Gaffigan takes his mic and gives it to John. And Dulce's now standing there with everybody's microphone and goes, next question. <laughs> right?
<laughs> so then that's reported in the Hollywood Reporter. So all the far right wing press, uh, like Breitbart or wh whatever those outlets are, are saying like, how dare South by Southwest take away John Cleese's microphone? They're trying to silence him and blah, blah. Right. It's all comedy. Everybody on that stage was having a great time. Afterwards, we were all like hanging out with each other. And John, a week later, came to New York and uh, he and Ricky Velez and I went out to dinner, mm. you know? And, but it's so interesting because all of us from various, you know, depending the orientation of the outlet, were taking fire and, yeah. and taking fire for how we treated the other. And no one acknowledges that that's how these companies, that's how these organizations make money. That's how the writers make money. Is they're like, I'm going to take the very simple joy that everybody experienced in that one night and turn it into a clusterfuck of hate and misunderstanding by misrepresenting what happened on the stage. Well, because like, so that reporter writes, hey, after three years, South by Southwest came back and had uh, an event to open their comedy schedule and a bunch of funny people got on stage and had a great time. And here's the funny things they said. How many people are going to read that article? Right. Yeah. But that's what happened. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. And it's a shame because I feel like the joy is still there in that article. You know what I mean? You could write you could write it in a way that's like, oh my God, they were edgy. They were on fire. They were having a good time. The audience erupted the way they should have, and yada, yada, yada. You don't have to make it out like they're demons. But I think, I think, I don't I don't think it started with Jon Stewart, but I do and I love The Daily Show and I love when it was on TV. But I think people on the political ends misunderstood what comedy not that they misunderstood it but i think they thought comedy could be used as a weapon because when john's you know not really he never called it activism but because that comedy kind of elicited this other response from people on the left and the right to actually do shit they saw comedy as a weapon but the problem is that comedians don't see it that way really so like you know john would do a joke about you know uh conservatives and and you know bullshit mountain as he called fox news all that stuff and then he would do a joke about climate change and then the climate change people would hate him and be like you're supposed to be on our side you don't do jokes about us we're using these as you know as points to take down the other side and then the other side realized that was a, a game they could I play think the, i think the difference is because look i mean this certainly predates the daily show there has been yeah political and social commentary baked into comedy right for as long as comedy has existed right um what we're dealing with now is not people just going, I agree with that point of view, or I disagree with that point of view. It has now, in many cases, and look, by the way, there's certainly some criticism of comedy that is warranted, and that's all free speech, and that's sure. all fine and good. Um, I mean, I think that's sometimes what gets lost in the conversation when people are talking about, quote unquote, cancel culture, is like, I, oh, I don't want to be criticized for what I say. It's like, no, 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 That's also free speech. You get to have free speech and say what you want to say. Yeah, and, then other and then other people can say they don't like what you're saying and that's their free speech and everyone can have free speech. Right. That's, but what I'm talking about is the misrepresentation of like what happened in Austin for the sake of the outrage. Sure. You know, and uh, it, it would be it would be one thing if people saw what we did and said, "Oh, geez, I was offended by that joke." And in, individual people might have been. I mean, uh, you know, I don't think 
we should restrict people's right to be offended. I, I think the thing that I think is a newer phenomenon is this, not only the addiction to outrage, but the need to gin up outrage where there had been none. Mm, yeah. and, and that's fairly new. And again, I, I'm, I'm not all in on this whole concept of cancel culture, but that's what happened to Kathy Griffin. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's again, I think a good point of of what I was saying about the right weaponizing that. Like they every each side has figured out exactly what they need somebody in the spotlight to say and do. So the right needed Kathy Griffin to hold a thing of Trump so they can make a giant fucking thing out of it. Even though for the most part the right is all about quote unquote free speech and doing that kind of shit, but each side has kind of figured out how to weaponize uh, somebody else in the spotlight's words. Right. Even when they don't like like turning jokes into statements, and, and and again, I think it's not entirely new because right. you could certainly point to what has happened historically to people like Mae West, oh yeah, or, or Lenny Bruce, or the Smothers Brothers, and, and those yep. are people who were genuinely canceled because yes. <laughs> there are power structures that are in place to. Uh, to in an orchestrated way destroy those people that is yeah. not criticism right the, you know the smothers brothers were taken off tv when they had the number one show on television yeah you know david steinberg tells a great story about nixon's uh security you know uh white house the, security knocking on his door right and saying do not do the nixon foot you know, he compared nixon to like a his face he like said his foot. face looks like a foot yeah right yeah which is so funny and so completely fucking innocuous like you know what i mean like it's not yeah. even the worst thing you could have said but yeah like that kind of shit is scary yes yes and and to me that's when people talk about uh cancellation right that's that's what they should be talking about it's like when when the government comes knocking on your door <laughs> right yeah and yeah. don't please don't compare the president to a foot we will shoot you and the, uh, <laughs> this leads perfectly into some of those comments too. Because Polly Chase is asking, in in the uh, is the crowd screaming offense already influencing what can be said in comedy from your perspective? I certainly know that there are a lot of comics who are nervous about what they can and can't do. I think, look, there's two sides to this conversation, and I can hold two thoughts in my head. I think. Even though you uh, you do have free speech and you can say whatever you want, there are some things you shouldn't say. And I think that those things that generally um, take traditionally marginalized and disadvantaged people and uh, and sort of aim the weapon of your comedy at those people, you know, what's called punching down. You know, I, I, I generally think that, like I say, the younger generations, I think, are more sensitive about that stuff. Can you still make those jokes? Yeah, you can. Should you? I don't think so. But I'm not the joke police. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So... I certainly understand that there are that there are 
there are comics that worry like, oh, I shouldn't do this because it'll seem racist. It'll seem homophobic. Like, I think we all got comfortable white people about not using the N-word. Like, oh, you know what? <laughs> Generally, the black people we know in our lives said, you know, we don't want you guys to have the right to use that word. And we all kind of went, we got that. Yeah, We got the memo. We're good with that. Like, and by the way, there's also plenty of new words that, you know, uh, different parts of our culture ask us to learn. I don't understand the difficulty in learning a new word, you know? I mean, nobody likes homework. I get it. No one likes homework. <laughs> right. But, so, look, you know, if there are parts of our culture that need to get healthier, that, you know, as we've seen from time immemorial, and by the way, <clears throat> there have been so many different points in our history where people in comedy said, well, if I can't do X, Y, Z, then I can't be funny anymore. We're like, why can't I oh, do, right. why can't we do blackface? Right. Like, really? Really? Um, Although Robert Downey Jr. knocked it out of the park. Look, <laughs> traffic thunder. Look, here's the thing. Like I say, every generation... I think gets to say, hey, this is kind of the direction we want the world to go in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those of us who are a little bit older, sometimes we get a little calcified and we go, well, wait a minute. I don't want to have to change anything. But we, we were their age. We wanted shit to change. Sure. You know, there yeah. were things that we thought, oh, God, these old people, they're just completely tone deaf. They don't get it. And then right. we, and then like 30 years later, we forget that that was us. Yeah. So, yeah. so look, I, I think that there are adjustments that are being made that needed to be made and that are good. But I also think, and I can hold these two thoughts in my head. Right. I think that there is this addiction to outrage where we go from, you know, zero to, you know, burn the motherfucker down. Right. That feels outsized in in i don't want to say many cases but in some yeah. cases it, it is weird because it does seem like there should be some kind of middle ground where it's like you know they'll wipe like there's a scrubs episode that they won't air anymore even though that like jd's pretending to be turk so they switch bodies and jd's in blackface i feel like that's when people who would be on the fan who would who would be inclined to agree Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, oh, okay. Like, I totally understand where you're coming from. You know, you I think it was, I think it was TCM about a year ago did yeah. a, a month. I think they called it reframed where they showed a bunch of quote unquote <laughs> problematic movies and had people that were film historians talk about whatever elements of those movies were problematic. I'm not for taking books out of libraries. Right. Uh, you know, or even ripping pages out of books. I think that hopefully we can all be smart enough to have this conversation to yeah. go, this was of a time. Now, by the way, that's my point of view. I understand that there are people that feel injured by the racism or sexism or whatever it is that they feel is uh, presented in those materials and they are uh, they are aggrieved that that stuff is 
is still allowed to exist. So I think it's a conversation. I, I appreciated what TCM tried to do by putting some context around those movies. And it is part of what I try to do with the obsessive comedy disorder stuff. Right. Um, by the way, this is interesting. I've gotten not a lot, but occasional pushback because I call this franchise obsessive comedy disorder. I, I happen to have OCD. Wow. <laughs> I actually have OCD. I mean, right. I, was, I was diagnosed when I was very young <laughs> with it's sort of like Jonathan's story. I was diagnosed as anal retentive, which wow. later was revised you know, by another therapist as, uh, no, you have OCD and the manifestation is this. And um, so I thought, oh, it was sort of like Maria Bamford calling her album um, Unwanted Thought Syndrome. Because sure. That is her form of OCD. Yeah, so I yeah. thought like, well, you know, certainly, again, I, I've done a lot of sort of uh, shining a spotlight on comedy that presents, I think, in a really useful way, explorations of mental health. And yet there are people who go, e you shouldn't be able to call that OCD. It's like, well, but I, 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 that's what I have. Yeah, yeah. I actually, it is, I actually have OCD. <laughs> yeah. It is weird when you're presented with that. I had, I had a friend who, you know Julia Scotty, right? No. You know Julia Scotty? Really, really funny comic. Um, she's great. She's a good friend. She's she's trans. She was, um, you know, uh, she's transgender. And, you know, I think she basically like 10 years in, right? She said about 10 years she's been... Um, but when, you know, she was doing comedy in the yeah. early 80s and everything, and it was hard for people to kind of understand when she made the transition, yada, yada, yada. So she had commented on um, Michael Chase did some kind of joke about Caitlyn Jenner, and everybody got into an uproar about, oh, my fucking God, like, that's such, that's such crazy bullshit. Like, he's, he's anti-trans, yada, yada, yada. And it wasn't an anti-trans joke. So Julia happened to step, like, just say something at one point. She was like, a lot of people are asking me because I'm trans. No, I don't think it was an anti-trans joke. You know, I don't I don't mm -hmm. think he's whatever. I don't know him, but this is what the joke is. And I noticed somebody, one of my friends had like attacked her on the whole thing. Somebody that I kind of know, you know, peripherally and didn't know she was trans and was like, right. you know, old white women shouldn't fucking yada, yada, yada. And then I said to her, right. hey, just so you know, she's trans. She's been trans for a really long time. Yada, mm -hmm. yada. And then she had to course, like she had to course correct her anger. Cause at first she was like, Oh, why? Well, I, I had no idea. And then she was like, no, I'm going to double down. She's like, well, then she's just brainwashed. And she thinks the way that you like, you can never, you know what I mean? Like, it's so weird how people's perspectives don't fucking matter to, right. you know, well, again, they, this is, this is part of what I would love to see happen, which is, I think all of this need to, well, are you on this team or are you on this team? Right. You know, this, 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 uh, this binary thinking, this escalation of outrage. Like I, I, I get that for a long time, there were things that needed to be addressed that went unaddressed yeah. and, uh, you know, uh, and they can still be addressed. And I, and I think they, they can still be addressed and should still be addressed. I, I think we just need to find uh, a, a safe space for everyone to hopefully create the world that we can all live in. Yeah safely and free from you know things and older that, people that do need to be us. given a minute like i feel like you know oh there's, totally there's no point in arguing with your 75 year old aunt who's near death on facebook because she can't wrap her head around what's the, the lingo of today you know what i mean you're like she got 10 years left let her let her figure it out so you know as <laughs> slow as she can she's not hurting anybody she's not making any laws yeah i mean well i think that's the thing about sort of learning new words. Like I say, yeah. no, one, no one wants homework. 
Uh, right. And so it's sometimes I, I think the objection isn't so much learning the new word. It's the being scolded that you've used the wrong word uh, and then like going, right, right, right. Sorry. Shit. OK. And it's like, you know what? I know plenty of good hearted, progressive, caring people that are just doing their best. Yep. And I hope we can learn to be a little patient with each other and sort of, you know, help the next generation, the generation behind them create the world that they want to live in. It's going to be theirs. They're going yeah. to inherit it. They should make of it what they want yeah. it to be. And they're and... going to make mistakes. And then they're the people after them are going to make mistakes. And I did this, I did this cartoon not too long ago and it was right around um, when like Gen Z was doing all the anti-gun stuff, which is great. Right. Mm -hmm. But I kind of did like just little quotes from generations and I did, you know, uh, uh, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. Mm -hmm. Ask not what you can do for your country. And then um, when I got to millennials, uh, no, I did Gen Z, which is, um, you know, they had that great quote, uh, fight for your life before someone else has to. Mm -hmm. And then um, I did millennials, which was uh, Friends is a really problematic show. And I feel like that was like that kind of encapsulated me because you know what I mean? Like, like you had like the young, like the ones like right after us that were so fucking young, but they were they were, you know, 19 and 20 in Congress fucking, you know, making all these amazing statements and speech. Not that they should have been on the news. They were kind of forced into it. But I thought that generation stepped up in a way that mine just just did not did not fucking do, which I think mm -hmm. is hilarious. Um, yeah. Well, we're gonna. I'm gonna ask you the last three questions. Well, uh, hold like, on. Let me. Let no, me I just it. looked at the time. I feel bad. I've kept him for over so, almost two. I literally just looked at the time and I was like, "Holy fuck! Is that really an hour and forty four minutes?" Yeah. Yeah. We got to get him at it. We got to get asking the three. One hundred percent. I just want to. Yeah. Ask I, by the way, I was gonna ask like, how long is this? No, I nine know, hours. I even yeah, nine. Yeah. John, John heard you say you did four and a half hours of Milton Berle. He was trying to top it. He was like, "We can do five. We can do five. Yeah, we're going five with Dan Passion. Let me. I'll get him the big three and then." Uh, one second, real quick, because this what is a good doing? question as far as his show. Is the SiriusXM show a weekly show, and where can they find it? No, 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 no. So uh, what these are, as of right now, is they are kind of um, special event audio documentaries. So, like, for example, uh, in the week leading up to the Grammy Awards, we did this special, which is the history of the comedy Grammy Awards. Uh, and it goes literally from the very beginning of the Grammys in 1959. And in the very first Grammy show, there was a comedy Grammy Award all the way through to this year. And it's interesting. We take on a lot of these larger issues. So these audio documentaries, they're about comedy, but they're about so much more. So we got into this odd quirk of the comedy Grammy Award where so few women had actually re been recognized by that particular award. And so we sort of tracked that narrative through to last year when Tiffany Haddish won over uh, a field of nominees, the rest of whom were all white men. Um, wow. So, you know, listen, I don't wanna make it sound like it's all about- Was she one of the first females nominated at all? She is the fourth solo female performer to win in over 60 years. It was Lily wow. Tomlin, then Whoopi Goldberg, then Kathy Griffin, and then Tiffany. So the fourth woman, second woman of color as a solo performer to win the comedy Grammy. So, but we track that whole journey and it begins with a great 
you know, expansive conversation I had 20 years ago with Bob Newhart when he won in one year three awards, including the Comedy Grammy, Best New Artist, and Album of the Year. Wow. He was one of two people that ever won Album of the Year across all genres for a comedy record. That's and it was incredible. And it was for his first record, which was recorded during his first time ever performing at a nightclub. Oh, yeah, wow. that was the most amazing thing about that, too, to me. Yeah. Is that he had never performed stand-up before that record. So anyway, so that special is now available on demand on the SiriusXM app if you subscribe to SiriusXM. And then the, uh, you know, the six and a half hours of the first, I think, three episodes of the story of the 80s comedy boom are there. I'll be making more of those. And I've got a couple more projects that I'm doing for them and, you know, some other audio stuff that I'm working on that hopefully we'll be able to announce real soon as well. Nice, man. That's awesome. All right, big three questions. Ready? Here we go. You can right, go sure. back in time and talk to your younger self and give yourself a piece of advice that would help you today. What would it be? Um, okay, so it's really interesting. I'll give you sort of a long answer to that because it's this is something I talk to my students at Tish about. Mm-hmm. When I first got started, I'm really talking about working as like a television executive and as a producer. I deferred to everybody. I thought, well, these people, they all have big titles. They have nice cars. They have, you know, big jobs and beautiful offices. They know better. Mm -hmm. And I deferred a lot and felt like I had good ideas, but wasn't confident in them. Mm -hmm. A little ways in, I started to figure out that these people didn't know what the fuck they were talking about. And I really started (laughs) asserting myself. But I also started asserting myself to the point that I didn't realize, oh, sometimes I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Right. And so I arrived at this third level, which is the place I've tried to live in. And what I say to my students is, you know more than you think you know, and you don't know as much as you think you know. Hmm. So I always say the best way to live is to be a student and a teacher at all times. And I wish I had known that when I was first starting out. It's sort of, uh, it's like owning what is clear and a vision that you have and then being open to what actually might uh, enhance or improve that. Hmm. So... Yeah, I think it, 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 that's a thing. That's a conclusion. I, I It took me a while to arrive at that. I wish I knew <laughs> nice, much, much earlier. That's great advice, though. Um, second question. If, what had to end in your life, good or bad, that led you to where you are today? Oh, God. Um, well, look, like I said, I was born and raised in L.A. Mm-hmm. And I took this job for Turner Broadcasting to go to Atlanta, Georgia, to become head of content for this new business, this uh, digital comedy platform called Super Deluxe. And the guy really sold me on the fact that this was going to be the new big thing and I needed to move to Atlanta to to, to do the job. And I said, I'm a Jew from LA. Why am I moving to Atlanta to be in show business? Right. Oh, boy. I... I, uh, yeah, I wish I hadn't done that. But oh. um, but what happened was 
that, you know, that landed me in Atlanta. Then I came to when that when Turner pulled the plug on that business and I had a house in Atlanta, I came up to New York to produce another show that led me to my job at IFC. We moved up here. And so, um, look, it's interesting. I mean, I, on the one hand, I wish I'd never left LA. On the other hand, where I live now in New Jersey, like my daughter is this incredibly centered, well-adjusted, happy, great kid. And so, you know, when I have to sort of balance all of this, like I wish I'd never left LA and yet I can't imagine my kid being like any happier or, you know, like succeeding in school or socially or in any which way more than she is in our little, little town here in New Jersey, you know, as she is right now. So, um, look, those are the things that, that happen in life. And, uh, I guess the thing that I'm, I'm the most grateful for is, you know, when everything's said and done, you know, what I'm trying to now just be in service of is like, um, there's this, there's this little person, this little 14 year old person that lives here in my house. And Mm -hmm. I just want to make sure that she's, um, you know, that she's uh, not going to have to spend a lot of money on therapy when she's my age. <laughs> good goals. Good, good goal. goals. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Um, and the last question ties in with the show, sir. So uh, if this was a genuine dystopia and everybody knew it was the if? last. If, if I'm talking way worse, I'm talking zombies, aliens, comet heading toward. La- everybody knows it's the last day on Earth. OK. How would you want to go out? What would be your epic death? My epic death? Yeah. I think, you know how people say, like, they laugh themselves to death? Yeah. Yeah. All right. I, I, I have to tell you, I love my family. Mm-hmm. But right behind my family, as we've, you know, been talking about here for two hours, I love right. comedy. And <laughs> there's nothing I enjoy more than being in the presence of the smartest, funniest people in the world and laughing. So, yeah, I would, I would want to go out like (laughs) so you want to go out like one of the weasels in roger rabbit like one of the weasels in roger rabbit yeah beautiful love it yeah i love that man that 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 is the perfect death for me i dude so good having you on the show man thank you so much and sorry thanks for staying for two hours by the way i was not my intention who's gonna listen to this or watch (laughs) this you know i mean I don't know. Everybody. Save it. You know, when I'm dead, you can repost it. All right. No, no, I'll post it before (laughs) that. That is an amazing. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we'll do it twice. Well, we run them both. Great. Great. Yeah. That's what this is for. This is no one's going to watch this and then you can post this and then like four people will watch this. (laughs) Thanks for doing it. I appreciate you, man. You're you're great, dude. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure, guys. Yeah, wealth and knowledge. Thank you so much, Dan. And we'll definitely see you again. I believe we'll have you back if you'll come back because uh, I think there's so (laughs) you got so much more. We didn't even touch on your career, which is amazing, right? We didn't even like dig into all of that. Portlandia, everything is still there. Was so much more, man. But Uh, thanks again, man. So so great to have you. Good to see you, dude. My pleasure. Bye.
Dystopia tonight.